Hey folks, today I'm speaking with Floris van der Pol. Floris is a Dutch philosopher, writer, and self-described reading addict. He publishes book reviews on YouTube, as well as videos on reading more generally and on living without a smartphone, which he has done for years now. Floris also writes a newsletter with essays on philosophy and literature. I met Flores in a course I was taking about YouTube, the part-time YouTuber Academy by Ali Abdal, if you're curious, in which Flores gave me fantastic feedback on some of my own YouTube videos. We got to chatting and some of his YouTube videos impressed me so much that I wanted to get him on the show. Flores and I discuss how he reads 100 books a year, what it's like to live without a smartphone, how he designed his life to improve his attention span, how to get stuff done with a baby around, and whether video gaming qualifies as an addiction. We also talk about much more, of course. Enjoy the show. All right, Floris, welcome to the show. Hi, Peter. Thank you. So, uh, Floris, you and I both live in the Netherlands, and we have just gone through one month of a full lockdown as, as the only country in Europe. I recently moved apartments, so it hasn't really affected me much because I had plenty to do. How has it affected you? Yeah, not much either. I've, I have a young daughter at home, so we're kind of stuck in our own bubble either way. I guess the only, the only thing that really changed for me personally is that I can no longer go to the gym. So I bought a pair of dumbbells, which you can uh, change the weights around very easily. And now I'm trying mm. to work... Uh, at home a bit but that's just for me directly personally i mean people in my environment are obviously affected a bit more yeah it's so funny that you mentioned the dumbbells because i remember the first lockdown we had for covid like a year and a half ago or, or even more now i guess wow that's been a long time i tried to buy two two of those dumbbells the adjustable ones but i could only find one because i think everybody <laughs> in the whole world wanted to buy dumbbells for their house <laughs> so was it easy to find them this time no not at all so i had to look at like five websites and then they all said that they will be available in one month or something so i ended up buying the most expensive ones yeah it's yeah it's too much money but i wanted them yeah no totally well for fortunately just today we got some news that uh gyms are opening again on saturday <laughs> so if the reports are to be believed so hopefully you can uh, get back uh, soon yeah but maybe i'll keep training at home actually it saves me from going to the gym and at the moment when because i have to take care of my daughter so much i mean every minute saved is kind of worth it yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so, so you mentioned you had a daughter, and she's like three months old now, or something. So I imagine that your time is very valuable, and you'd rather anything you can do to save time, you'll uh, you'll exactly. take the opportunity. Yeah, procrastination is no longer an issue when you have a as a small child around. We can leave that as uh, advice for any listener who does not yet have kids. I I heard Flora say that if you struggle to procrastinate, you should just have a kid. That's that's what I heard. So. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> No, that's great. Do you find it easy to bring up the motivation to actually work out at home? Yeah, because it's a nice break. I mean, so I'm really like the parent at the moment. My girlfriend has a job at university and she, she's working uh, mm. pretty much full time. So I'm taking care of, of my little girl. And then at lunch break, I get one hour to work out. So, I mean, <laughs> it's my free hour. I'll go for it. <laughs> yeah, it's really easy to bring it up. I see. Yeah, it's something to look forward to. I can see that. I, I guess for me, 
you know, because I, I have no kids, so I don't have that responsibility. But I remember the first time there was lockdown and, and I was just like, okay, I'm going to try to make myself work out from home. But I resisted it so much. I was like, ugh, this is the exact same room that I also tried to work in. And I just like, I always get postponing it and stuff. And I didn't, I never fixed that. The re- the way I like actually started going to the gym is just paying a personal trainer at some point. <laughs> and that's, that's the way I fixed it. Um, so I find it impressive that you can make yourself do it. But I guess your the priorities are a little different. Yeah, but... It- for me, it's also, it's not in the same room. So I guess that's the difference. I actually have to go up to the stairs uh, uh. to like, uh, yeah, not the basement, the thing that's the attic, that's on yeah. top. the attic indeed. And there I have the dumbbells in a small room for my, for my own. I have some rings where I can do pull-ups and stuff like that. So, I mean, I do think that's important that you somehow have a different area for a different kind of task. So that you don't have a single room where you need to sleep work make love do everything basically because then it's easy to to get those things confused yeah no totally and and you know you know i just moved apartments right and um in our previous place it wasn't a studio but it was like a one bedroom apartment technically two bedroom but i mean one actual bedroom and a tiny 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 office but basically because i live with my girlfriend one of us was always working in the living room and it's just so weird when like you're saying it's this, you're, that's where you're cooking that's where you're eating that's where you're just chilling and like your brain is like no this is where i'm supposed to have fun this is not where i should sit down and do work or something like that um yeah, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I actually heard about this performance artist who lived in a cage for a, for a single year. And he only had like a bed and a couple of square, square meters. And then people asked after he lived there for a year, like, how did you do it? And then he said, yeah. So I imagined that I had in my bed and I split it in, in three. And when I sat on the left side, it was like my garden. The middle, middle was my living room and the right side was something else like... Even if you don't have the room, somehow visualizing that there are different spaces can already work. I thought that was a magnificent finding. And that guy lived in a, a cage for, for a whole year. That's, that's incredible. Wow, that is indeed really impressive. And also mentally strong to be able to do that, I think. because <laughs> That's oof. discipline for sure, yes. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of um, my girlfriend studied in Hong Kong. And one of the things she mentioned is that because in Hong Kong, there's so little space for so many people that the room that she shared at university was with like two other girls and they basically all had like a desk and a bed and you could like barely close the door. So I think there probably are actually people you know, living like that, except it's obviously different if you cannot leave the cage, right? But I think I think there are, you know, in many places in the world, obviously people living in tiny, tiny, tiny spaces. So um, could be good advice for them. Yeah, and maybe we have a luxury problem like many things, but hey, they're still problems, right? That's how I feel. Luxury problems are still problems. <laughs> so you need perspective, but you can acknowledge to yourself that it's a problem. So I wanted to talk about something, Flores, and, and, and for the listeners who, who don't know yet, Flores has a, a YouTube channel, which will, of course, be in the show notes. Um, and, you know, I always do a little background research on my podcast guests. And, and so um, I, I'd already been watching a bunch of your videos, but I watched a couple new ones. And one of them you mentioned that as a teenager, you did a lot of gaming. This is in a uh, in a video you made about how you read 100 books a year, which I definitely want to ask you about later. Um, And you said that as a teenager, one of the things you spent a lot of time doing is playing video games. And that's something that is very 
you know, it's very familiar to me. I was that person too. You know, sometimes I've tried estimating how many hours a day I played video games as a teenager, probably something like six or eight or whatever. It's very hard to say. Um, was it like that for you? Yes, more than eight, uh, for sure. I mean, especially when I went to university because then I had nothing to do anymore. I mean, like, I think uh, I touched on 10 or 12 hours a day. Yeah. Oh, man. And what kind of games did you play? Yeah, so there was this one game which was called Nuke Zone, which was actually a text-based game, so it had no images at all. Wow. You had to build this province and, and, and armies, but your army basically read like... Uh, and Abrams tanks 1,000, and that's the amount of units you had of it, and then the stats of, of the tank and stuff like that. And then it was organizing in clans, so you were working together with, with other users and were warring yeah. with other clans and stuff like that. And I mean, to me, it was a blast for sure. And and you played that for, how, like, for years? Yeah, for years, for sure. I mean, that there was some real dedication in that game because you basically had to log in every five hours to be kind of optimal within that game so in the night you you would set your alarm to wake up and play the game and stuff like that it was i mean the discipline uh, came from there for sure yeah it's so funny that you mentioned that because I have very mixed feelings about my own gaming time. I played mostly games like Call of Duty. And actually, at some point, I was like one of the top, like my clan was the top Call of Duty clan in, in Europe for a very brief uh, period, which, you know, at the time was much easier to achieve than now. I mean, this is like 2005, like right now. Good luck right now. You need coaches and whatever, you know. But, um, but we trained a lot. So, you know, we had like three nights a week of like training and then, you know, one night a week of actual like, you know, competition games or maybe two nights a week. And I feel I have very mixed feelings about it because I think it really messed up my brain in many ways to to game that much. You know, it's I think of it as an addiction. Basically, I'm like a video game addict who doesn't have as much of a problem with it anymore. It's the way I think about it. But I also feel like I learned a lot. So it's interesting that you mentioned for the dedication because I definitely learned some leadership skills. Um, I learned how to set goals and you know in a targeted way achieve those goals. How to prepare for big events like competitions and stuff. So. I don't think it was all bad. What do you think? I basically agree with everything you said. But the question is, if there was no gaming, like would you have learned the skills somewhere else without an addiction and perhaps also learned some other skills? I mean, like, yeah, gaming was in certain aspects certainly great. And I learned a lot. But I mean, so many hours, so many years. I don't know. It, it, of course, if you compare it to doing absolutely nothing, gaming trumps absolutely doing nothing. It has but, some value. <laughs> yeah. But what should you compare it to? That's the question. Yeah, I like this question because I studied economics in college. And so in economics, we ask, uh, what is the opportunity cost is essentially what you're asking right now. Like, what else could you have spent your your time, your energy or your money on in, in, you know, in economics sometimes? And uh that's a, that's a good question, but you know, I do think there's sort of a bit of a stigma with with people who play games, right? And so they're uh, loners, or and maybe this is less so now than it used to be. But um, you know, people who play a lot of games are loners, and they, you know, they should be doing more productive things with their lives. And you know, I I think like you're saying, it just it totally depends on what is the other thing that you're doing. I mean, if the other thing you're going to be doing is drugs, I think it's probably better, you know. Or if the other thing you're going to be doing is causing trouble in the streets, it's probably better. But you know. 
if I compare it to sort of someone I, I used to date at some point who spent much of her teenage years learning how to conduct an orchestra, I, okay, I don't know, maybe that's a better use of time. So, Yeah, maybe, but also with gaming, it, I do think it depends on the, the game and the intensity. Like for me, mm. looking back, it, it for sure, it was an addiction and it was also an es escape in a sense that when I was gaming and I didn't only play Nukesome, but also some other games, it was like, it was entering another world to not live in the the real world, so, so to say. I mean, I would say that I was one of those loners. I mean, yeah, I mean, th there is a stigma and it's for sure gaming, you can game in moderation and you can learn a lot from it. But I do think there, is, there might be this tendency for people to escape in gaming. Yeah. Was there anything in particular at the time that you were trying to escape from? Life in general, I guess. <laughs> expectations, yeah. not knowing what to do. Right. Yeah, that, that's, you know, so I, I still play games from time to time now. Um, actually, lately, it's it's really been daily. Um, it's very interesting to sort of observe my, my own pattern. I, I play uh, League of Legends on my iPad. Um, which is something I, I used to play League of Legends on the computer. It was actually kind of nice on the iPad because individual games are shorter. You know, it's one of those things that like you play it with 10 people though, like with nine other people and it's like five versus five. Like you cannot, you have to kind of commit to it. You can't just sort of like turn it off. Um, you have to like finish one game, which is sometimes eight minutes and sometimes, you know, 40 minutes. Um, but, um, you know, I think at the time for me, um, I, I, I felt a lot of, you know, you're a teenager, right? And so you don't, you know, you don't really know what you want. There's like social things going on at school. At least for me, there were like, I wasn't really one of the most popular kids at school, but in the video gaming, I was the leader of what we call the clan, the team, right? And so, you, you know, people look up to you and stuff like that. You get to make decisions. And so for me, that was very exciting. So I'm not sure if I was really trying to like hide from real life as much as like it was just somehow more exciting and of course you know there's also like dopamine going on um yeah how was that for you well i think the status is definitely a thing and, and for me in nukeson I, I was also a clan leader or, and then you're a leader of of 20 people yeah you commit to this like period of three months with, with with those 20 people so you really get close with them and we will be on skype every night even when we were setting our alarms we would set them at the same time so we could all go on skype and chat with each other and all attack the same province and i mean in that sense it it was also kind of bonding i mean with, with those people like with some of them, I, I watched uh, Football Inside, which is this Dutch football program where they talk about football and then we would just watch together and then uh, discuss it and stuff like that. So, I mean, yeah, gaming, but that's the thing, like gaming can mean so much. It's always easy from the outside if if you don't have experience in it to reduce it to, to something, like to reduce it to a problem or to reduce it to something that's just fun or something. But there's so many elements within it, which obviously depends on the person. Yeah, totally. And do you still play any games today or is that no. totally not part of your life? No, no, I'm still addicted. Yeah, I, I, ca I cannot, I cannot, seriously, I cannot play a game for half an hour or an hour or whatever. Like I used to play also Dota, which is the precursor of, of League of Legends and Dota <laughs> yeah. 2. And 
sometimes on YouTube, I find myself watching these Dota streams or Age of Empires streams or whatever. And even those get me hooked straight away. Like yeah. the addiction is there, but yeah. And I don't think it will ever go away. Yeah, I, I've thought about this a lot because I think at some point it's just your neurons are wired in such a way that like it just fires up so much desire, right? And I, it's been really interesting for me to observe recently because I feel like I'm somehow keeping it under control. Like I've been doing a thing lately where I'm reserving all of Tuesday and all of Wednesday to work on my YouTube channel. And so that means I'm either you know writing the outline for a video, fleshing out an idea, or I'm recording. Um, and gaming does not really get in the way but at the same time if i want to take a break i might play a quick game or most of the time in the evening sort of before i go to bed i'll play a game or a couple games and you know i can tell that sometimes it kind of it's like slipping through my fingers i feel like it gets too much but at other times i'm able to control myself and it's almost kind of like a challenge to see like can, can i kind of handle it um but at the same time maybe it's a bit playing with fire <laughs> so yeah and that's what you're uh, to play devil's advocate that's what you're telling yourself like yeah i'm still in control i'm just playing <laughs> with it oh no i'm not back smoking i just take one cigarette at a party like <laughs> who's speaking there like it, it might be the and you know the voice of the addicted one which is pushing the boundaries slowly but I can't speak for you, but I know for me, like it, it's still there, the addiction for sure. No, totally. I've thought about it a lot, you know, because I, when I set my goals, right, every quarter I update my list of goals that I sort of have for my life. I'm never, I'll never write anything down like I want to play more video games. <laughs> That's never on my list of goals. I did actually at some point have the goal of becoming so or of like playing a game against a professional player of a different game called command and conquer general zero hour which i played a lot when i was a teenager it's kind of like red alert style um and, and so i played that a lot as a teenager but there's still an active community of people playing this and at some point one of my goals is like i just want to play a game for fun against one of the top players which would require me to develop some level of proficiency for a top player to want to play with me right um but I kind of dropped that at some point because I realized that I didn't care about it so much anymore. But it's interesting that you mentioned that because, I, I, you know, I, I guess I kind of think of it as like harmless in the moment. It's just entertainment. It's just fun. It's like it's like one of the things I do for fun, just like other people watch TV. But, you know, if you substitute smoking for gaming and tell the same story, maybe I would judge myself much more harshly. Yeah, but on the other hand, like addictions, why are addictions bad? Like it's because they ruin the rest of your life right we're addicted to like the thing is we only use addiction as a term for things that affect your life negatively or that yeah. we think that affects society negatively and i mean if it's in balance with the rest of your life i mean then then it's obviously fine like take drinking water we're obviously all addicted to drinking water or, <laughs> or, or something but but no one cares or we're glad we are yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I've noticed also, like, if I'm on a trip, I love to go scuba diving, for example. If I'm on a trip and I'm scuba diving, I do not think about pulling out my phone or iPad to play a game or something like that, right? It's just, you know, I think also with, like, COVID and the lockdowns and, and for the past two years having been spent, spent a lot of time at home, it's easier to do this to hide from the reality of, like, I want to go places. I want to do other things. I cannot. Let's just, like, waste some time this way. <laughs> so. You could also read a book. <laughs> That's a good point. And let's talk about that because that's something that I've been wanting to ask you about. So your YouTube channel is in Dutch. And so people should know this. It's in Dutch. Um, 
but there's a lot of valuable stuff on there. And so it's called Flores Reads, if I translate it to English. And so a lot of the things you do is you discuss books. And um, one of your videos is sort of something like how I read 100 books a year, um, which to a lot of people I think is going to sound like a lot to read 100 books a year. So I'm kind of curious, um, how do you read that many books? All right, so first things first, like the number 100, quantity doesn't really matter. Like I put that in the title to get people in, but I do really want to stress that beforehand because I've had people commenting in the on the video like, yeah, I also want to read 100 books. I'm only reading 40. And then i like, yeah, <laughs> who cares about the amount? It's Some books are thick. Some books are, are like hard to understand. Some books you want to reread. So... Let's talk about the practice of reading and, and let's not focus so much on the quantity. I mean, it's also my mistake, but that's always like a fine line with, with titles and thumbnails. Like you pick something to put pe- yeah, to pull people in, but at the same time, you don't want the true message to get lost. No, I, I don't think that's a mistake of yours. I think that's good. I think, you know, this this is a video on YouTube, right? And so people on YouTube can watch cat videos or they can watch what you have to say about reading more. And I think for a lot of people, while cat videos are very funny, you know, they have a desire to read more. And if you can get their attention and, and you know, talk to them for a little bit and, and do something that causes them to actually read more books, I think you're actually making a positive difference in their lives. Um, so I think I that's great. I certainly hope so, yeah. But it yeah. is a thin line, I guess. But but let's talk about books before we, we delve into like a meta discussion of YouTube and the problems with, with YouTube, which I'd love to talk about, but about reading, like, right. So then we have to also get to the smartphone, like, because, because I don't have a smartphone, I have a lot of time for reading. Uh, so usually yeah, so I, hold up, hold up. We gotta, we gotta yeah. talk about that for a second. Yeah. So you do not own a smartphone for how long has this been the case? Yeah. About four years now. That is a long time not to own a smartphone. Um, why do you not own a smartphone? Okay, so I was tired of constantly looking at my smartphone. It's it's that basic. Uh, I noticed myself when I had this these small moments of time, I would grab my smartphone, not really knowing why, but it was just this instinctive habit when I was waiting for the bus, when I was in the bus, when I had just stepped out of the bus the whole time and so and we discussed opportunity cost shortly and i was thinking okay if i do something else what would i like to do okay i'd like to read or i'd like to take notes because i like to write so i thought okay i need to restrict my smartphone use so i googled how to restrict your smartphone use and i threw away apps and i threw away the notifications and i threw away some more apps and i restricted the time use and then I had restricted so much that my smartphone could actually only call people. And then I thought, okay, basically I've downgraded my smartphone to a dumb phone. Let's just do it away altogether. (laughs) And does that cause you any problems, not having a smartphone? No. Like people, because uh, people have asked me this before, obviously, especially friends and um and they always wonder, like, oh, do you not get lost because you don't have maps? Or how about group chats and stuff like that? Like, 
I've got lo lost once in four years and I've obviously missed a lot of parties, that's for sure. And I once arrived at a party which had been canceled, but no one had told me. But that's Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But we had a nice evening with the two of us. Yeah, so it was also great. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking, for example, like also in COVID times, you know, for the listeners, they may not know, but in the Netherlands, we have a um, QR code for if you are vaccinated against COVID. And if you want to get into certain places, uh, you need to show a QR code either because you tested negatively um, very recently or because you've had your shots. And so um, most people pull out their smartphone for this flows, but you don't have a smartphone. <laughs> Yeah, so you can print one out, and I have a printed version in my jacket. And then there's still a lot of workaround for stuff like that. And to be honest, it does sometimes feel like a workaround and that the world is more and more adapted to smartphones. And that, for example, with bank transfers, it's getting more and more difficult. Like There are still solutions for sure, because there is still a big enough group that forces society yeah to make sure that people with a smartphone have access to their services but it's getting harder and how do you feel i want to get back to reading soon but i'm just really fascinated mm. by this not having a smartphone thing because i've been wanting to do an experiment of like not using my smartphone for a month or something like that but i just think it's going to be so hard based on some preliminary thinking i've done like how much i rely on the phone um so, so how does this affect your day-to-day -day sort of attention and productivity because that's i think the appeal for many people right a lot of you know, i was just coaching someone a couple hours ago um you know i have a one-on-one -on -one coaching program and, and she said listen like when i have to do my important work like writing papers writing academic papers you know i just find myself reaching for my phone um or or maybe not reaching but seeing notifications come in and stuff so i guess for a lot of people the dream is ah oh, like if i didn't have a phone I'd be extremely productive and I'd be focused all the time. So how is that for you? Well, it's obviously not that easy, but it, it does help. Like when, you, when we think about discipline, we often think about discipline that is something you, you have to do to yourself. Like you have to be your master of your own mind. But obviously mm -hmm. like we always live situated within a certain environment and the environment has certain pools over you. For example, the, the, the smartphone has this pool over you to take a look. So if the smartphone is not there, the pool is not there. And I think that's really important to think about discipline also really in terms of your environment and how you can shape your external environment to make discipline easier. And not having a smartphone helps, but then you go onto your laptop and then, hey, there's also YouTube and TikTok and whatever you do to get those dopamine neurons fired. So on my laptop, I have a program called Cold Turkey Pro, which allows me to restrict my, my future access for the future floors right I used, oh, to, yeah. I used to think of this like oh this is some, some sort of weakness but nowadays i think like there are like the most brilliant minds in the world are getting paid to get me addicted like billions are invested to get me addicted yeah i need every trick in the book to get to help me and so it was thinking about this the other day and then i thought about one of the oldest stories in literature which is uh, the odyssey by homer and there is this scene that Od um that the odyssey he um 
He let himself get tied uh, to a mast on a ship because they're going past the sirens. And these oh, sirens, yes, yes. They, they can <laughs> sing so beautifully that everyone wants to stay there. And then the, in the end, he, they die. So he like tells his crew, okay, tie me to the mast and whatever happens, do not let me lose. And then I thought that is how I think about, for example, the app on my laptop. Like it's preventing the future floors from a, from a seduction and so it's not not something new like this is something people have always done like one of the great heroes of literature has already like come up with this idea that his future self would be weak so his current self can prevent that from happening and i mean that's that's basically what i do yeah, and so when, I, I don't know the story too well, but when Odysseus actually passes the sirens, does he tell them, uh, cut me loose, cut me loose? Is yeah, it like that? but he also <laughs> said he'd probably say that. And in they the don't. end, he's the only one who survives. Oh, interesting, interesting. If um, I remember correctly, it's it's been, been a while. I have to look at it again, because I just came up with this connection a couple of days ago. So I... Uh, I'm going to look at it again, but if I remember clearly, he's the only one who survives uh, because he was the only one who cared about his future self. Yeah, that's a, that's a great message. And so um, you mentioned your lack of owning a smartphone in the context of reading books. So what is the connection there? Yeah, so I think with reading, it's like most things in life about making it a habit. So I've really thought about that. Okay, I really like reading. How do I make sure that I always have an opportunity to read? So I think that's where it starts. So for me, I try to have books everywhere. I even, back when I was at university, had this jacket with this winter jacket, which allowed me to stuff a book inside one of the, I don't know what it's called. The pockets? One of the pockets in these. So I would always have a book with me. And that's must have been a really it. large pocket. <laughs> yeah, but it's about accessibility. I mean, the book was closer than than the phone. Mm. So that's, that's one of the approaches. Like, think about friction. How can you reduce friction to read a book? Make sure the book is closer to you than everything else. Um, but that's assuming you like reading. I mean... If you don't like reading, I'm not <laughs> one to tell you you have to go reading or something. But if you already know, like, okay, I like reading. Reading is important to me. I want to read more, but I think certain things are preventing me from reading more. Then you can think about, okay, how do I shape my environment? How do I change my habits and stuff like that? But that only comes if you find reading important to begin with. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting because... I see a lot of my course students setting goals like I want to read more or sometimes more specifically, I want to read X books a month or per year or whatever. And I think for a lot of people, this is an intention, but then when I sort of ask whether they actually enjoy reading, the answer is they usually don't because they cannot keep their attention on it. Um, so I'm kind of curious whether you think there's, um, you know, what is the relation between ha between sort of feeling like I, I have a goal to read more, but then not enjoying it in the moment? Do you actually want it if you don't enjoy it in the moment? That's a difficult question, but the thing might also be is that they're reading the wrong books. 
the, f the thing is with, with loads of books and they're not written for people who do not read a lot mm. um, so if you're getting into the habit of reading and you notice yourself not enjoying it or being distracted perhaps you're picking up books that are somehow too ambitious for you at that moment that you first need to get back into the habit of reading and enjoying the process before tackling such books i mean I'm, i come mainly from this at, from the literature side but like we have these famous classic novels like Tolstoy, War and Peace. And then people who've never read are like, yeah, I want to read the classics. I'll start with War and Peace. 1, yeah, good luck. Pages, 1,000 characters. And I mean, like, sure, you could do it, but you could also start with some short stories from him. Like eh, stories that are perhaps five pages long or 20 pages long. And just just read one in one sitting before bedtime. And you actually have the feeling that you finished a task. Yeah. so that might be a better approach and for non-fiction I, I mean it also depends like some non-fiction books I guess mainly most nowadays are written in small portions and should be quite accessible but I, I do think that's something to, to consider yeah and you know it's interesting that you mentioned reading at bedtime because that, that's something i've done for as long as i can remember i mean i, I read in bed every single i mean i guess occasionally i'm so tired that i can't bring myself but like it really rarely happens um and so i'm very used to reading at night but but i've also noticed like i, I will usually I, i'll read either fiction um you know which can range a lot like for example, I like space opera a lot, you know, not, not usually super intense, serious literature, but also sometimes nonfiction. Like, for example, I recently did a video of my favorite books. One of the books I really liked is The Making of the Atomic Bomb. Fascinating. Um, you know, you learn about the Manhattan Project and all that stuff. And, you know, how does nuclear energy work and nuclear reactors and, you know, that kind of stuff I can read. But then a lot of people, because I sort of teach productivity on the Internet, a lot of people think that I must read lots of productivity books and like, I do not actually like I have a very hard time making myself reading productivity books and especially in the evening I couldn't do it because that would just keep me up like that you know I do like to read something that sort of has me gradually falling asleep um, but even during the day I find it very difficult for some reason to read about it so I think you're so right that it matters a lot um, on the kinds of books that you read would you say that there's like um, better things to read and worse things to read yeah don't read too many productivity books that's for sure <laughs> why not right because you often fall in this trap of trying to optimize for productivity and then you're just spending all your time on optimizing productivity instead of doing what you want to do and i i think that counts for almost all self-help books and books that go into that direction i mean unless you really want to be good in the theory of of self-help and you want to become like you and have a podcast and help people. But if that's not your goal, I mean, go for one book a year in, in that space maximum. And then do really study that book and try to follow it. But I think people often fall in the trap of consuming more and more. Yeah, I also think that people are different. And so a lot of the times what people will tell me is like, I've been trying to apply, for example, I know you also read James Clear's Atomic Habits, or at least I saw it in the thumbnail of one of your videos. So presumably you read it. Yeah, um, read it. And a lot of people are like, yeah, I've read this book and I tried these techniques and they didn't work for me. And so I think, I think it makes people feel like they're somehow bad at something. Whereas my reaction is just like, I guess it didn't work for you. Try something else. Right. Yeah. That's also a fair point. And, but but I do think that 
at least that's also something that I noticed for myself. And that's actually one of the points that James Clear makes in that book is that this distinction between motion and action. That action is actually doing this, the thing itself. For example, you want to be a better football player. Action is actually picking up the ball and kicking the ball. Emotion is reading about becoming a better football player, watching <laughs> yeah. Ronaldo score a famous goal and stuff like that. And I think in the realm of productivity and self-help, people often fall in the trap of too much motion. But that's yes. not to say that motion doesn't help because I actually watch some of your videos about things free and I implemented them. And I really like how you approach that. And it didn't cost me too much time. And I do think it made me more productive. Well, thanks. That's a, that's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. No, I, it's it's very funny because you're so right. You know, I, I often tell people like, I spend a lot more time thinking about productivity than you, and it should be that way because I'm trying to teach it. So you should. This is why I have courses also so that I can quickly transfer knowledge and you can move on with your life and do whatever it is that you're good at. You know, whether that's like some medical research or being a philosopher or whatever. Um, so back to reading though. Um, how do you feel about audiobooks? Is that if someone says, I really want to read more, I know what kind of books I want to read, I just have trouble actually making myself sit down and keep my attention on a book, would you say, okay, listen to audiobooks? For some people, it works. Like, that's kind of, for audiobooks, it's really like per personal. I don't like them at all. Um, and the Why reason not? is that you, it's difficult to pause. And it's also difficult to really study a text. So I think audiobooks work well for texts that are not that great. Hmm. And that's a bit a bit harsh to say, but I think a book that works great as an audiobook is a different kind of book that, than a book that works great as a text. Uh, in a text, you can pause, you can really think about a sentence, try to connect it. And in an audiobook, everything goes in the same tempo. So it yeah. has to be written in a sense that someone can understand it in, in the same tempo. And that often leads to a load of repetitions, load of, loads of examples. Right. Uh, and, and sure, that, that can work. But I come from a background of philosophy. We, we're used to like really dense text and reading a paragraph over and over again and trying to even understand single sentences. So for me, this rush of the audio book is like, it's almost like if you can understand a book as an audio book, it's probably not worth reading to begin with. But <laughs> but that's also a bit, it's a bit too harsh because that's coming from someone who has read a lot and read a lot of difficult texts. And I mean, yeah. for some people, they, they probably don't want to read Kant and, and difficult stuff and they just uh, want to hear a good story and audio books are probably great for that. Yeah, and I know it works very well for some people. So, for example, I recently did a course on how to get better at YouTube by Ali Abdal. Ali Abdal is like a pretty, you know, big YouTuber these days, also has videos on productivity and stuff. And he says that he listens to a lot of audiobooks, you know, and like he's clearly a very intelligent person and stuff. And like he, he, he consumes a lot of books, um, and I guess mostly through audio. And so, I don't know, I think, I think for some people, it my sense is it probably works, but I do agree with you, but your basic point that it, it makes it more difficult to slow down on a specific bit. Like how do you, you know, I, I probably would find myself rewinding a lot, right? And which is kind of tedious if you're, you know, I think people listen to audiobooks on the go, maybe while driving, you know, or I, here in the Netherlands, we're biking. Um, 
or you know while doing the dishes or whatever so um i don't know i guess i guess for me i prefer to listen to something like a podcast which to me is more naturally something you listen to because it's a conversation between people and it's, it's more used to it um or it's, it's better for the medium of audio agreed but we also have to come back to the the question of why do you read i mean if you read or want to read just for entertainment that's completely something different from whether you read for your study or you read as a profession and you want to extract the knowledge and combine it with your already current understanding and for me reading is often always connected to also producing something whether it's a youtube video or an essay or or a story or something like that and that does ask for a different kind of reading a more intense reading with taking notes and connecting ideas and i guess then audiobooks make even less sense i I think audiobooks probably make the most sense if you want to consume lightly and that's absolutely Mm. fine i mean uh, i listen to some podcasts like that just because i like them and i think oh perhaps some of those ideas will will stay in my head but i don't want to take notes of everything i certainly don't care about every single idea that comes by but i i like the general vibe and i yeah i like if, if it's just one idea that that stays in my head then that's fine and i mean if, if that's your approach and i guess all your books are fine yeah i understand and you know that that reminds me that i wanted to ask you about attention spans which i find find very interesting um there's a couple of reasons that i, I thought about attention spans because um, you mentioned that you know light light reading is probably easier to consume in audio form, but you also mentioned that you studied philosophy and that you read a lot of tough philosophical texts, and that reminded me of when I was in college, and I got really mad because we had to, for my political science class, for example, read something by Foucault, and so difficult to understand. I like I, I just found myself like like you're saying, you go back over the same paragraph three or four times, and you still don't understand what it says. Um, and I, I don't know, I kind of developed the opinion that if it is that difficult to understand a text, then they just didn't try hard enough to explain their idea well, which maybe is a little a little <laughs> crude. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't think things necessarily need to be difficult. I don't think, you know, complex ideas need to be difficult to comprehend, right? Like, I don't think it's bad if something is easy to understand. Do you feel like certain material is just always going to be difficult to comprehend, to read? Mm. It's a difficult question. So, okay, let's let's first start with Foucault and then perhaps we can go from there. So <laughs> I think especially with philosophers, a lot of people don't understand that Philosophers don't write for students. Philosophers write for other philosophers. So Mm -hmm. as a student, you're at a major disadvantage because you're used to reading stuff that's actually kind of written for you. And now you're reading something that is written for people who have studied philosophy for 30 years and are at the same level as the one who is writing. Mm -hmm. So those texts are going to be bloody difficult, especially the texts from French authors, because they've all studied the same uh, philosophers. That's due to how the, the French uh, co- university system works. They all study the same authors for a couple of years. So they all assume the same background knowledge already uh, when starting see. to read the text. So, I mean, those texts, they are really difficult, but they are the, that's at least part of the reason. But I do agree that... Uh, 
there is a certain skill in making things easier to comprehend. And some texts are difficult because the author is a is a bad writer. Hmm. And sometimes, especially in philosophy, you need a, a second voice to translate something to a more general public. Hmm. But that's not to say that every difficult idea can be dumped down and still hold fully its content. Some because that's also something that that I think often happens that when you try to translate it to a broader audience that something of the original idea gets lost and that's a difficulty with with philosophy because you on the one hand you want to stay true to the original idea but you also want to present it in a certain way that a lot of people can understand it but if if we for example take a parallel to to physics i mean there are physics theories out there that perhaps only 100 people in the world can understand. Yeah. And we're not going to say, oh, those are dumb theories because we cannot understand them as laymen. Uh, and then another physicist might try to translate it to a book for a general audience and then use all these examples, like time is like uh, like bread and you can go all these ways and, and stuff like that. And then we think, ah, okay, now we get something of it. Okay, maybe we get it a bit. But it's not the same. Like... It, it is a, it is a translation and, and a, a lot get lost in the transi- in the translation and I think the weird thing is that if, with philosophy people expect that everyone should understand it because it they are words and we understand the words but we we don't expect that of physics or biology mm. that's a good point that's a good point yeah people are not going like wow I do not understand the string theory therefore string theory is like poorly conceived indeed. <laughs> Yeah, it, it reminds me of one class I, you know, took in economics, and we read a paper that was about the economics of healthcare, which is very interesting because when you study economics, you learn about how markets work and you know how um, markets make sure that there's a balance between demand and supply for whatever it is you're buying, toilet paper. You know, like that didn't go very well in the beginning of the pandemic. I don't know if that was true <laughs> in other countries, but in the Netherlands, <laughs> we had no toilet paper for a while in the shops. Um, you know, and I, I remember what it said about healthcare, and there was a very famous paper basically by healthcare economics. I mean, it, it was like, you know, in like, I don't know, the 60s or something, like a long time ago, 70s maybe. And basically this this professor of economics explained like, healthcare is not a normal market. It's not like buying apples. It's not like if apples are a bit cheaper somewhere else, you know, like someone goes to the other shop to get the cheaper apples and people can see, oh, they're the same quality apples, you know. He said, when you go to a doctor, you can't. You don't, it's very hard to compare the quality of one doctor with another one. Like you don't, you don't, may not know what is wrong with you. You don't really know how skilled this doctor is. You cannot really judge this ahead of time and stuff. And I remember that was such a profound idea. And there was a lot of math behind it. But at the same time, like I, I remember reading the paper that described this, and I was like, wow, this is the first time I've actually read a professional economics paper. And I understood all of it and I was able to follow it, you know, and, and I, I didn't feel that way about a lot of the contemporary economics papers, which were all full of really complicated equations and whatever. But even aside from that, just like they were written so poorly, you know, in like a, a drab style and like this paper on health economics was just like, it was almost like I was reading like a fun novel or something like that, you know? So I don't know. I don't know. I feel like on the one hand, I, I agree with what you're saying. On the other hand, I also think that like, Everyone, regardless of whether you're writing for philosophers or for lay people or whatever, you should really try to make things as accessible as possible. And, and some things will in, end up being more accessible than others. 
Agreed. But it's also a skill and it's difficult. Let's be honest. Yeah. It's really difficult, especially to translate difficult new ideas directly to a, to a broader audience. And it's also the whole system of academics, which kind of forces papers to be kind of boring. Yes, no, that's de definitely true. And very sad also, <laughs> so because it like, you know, it, it's one of the reasons why I realized I don't want to go into academia, which, which I considered at some point, but I was just like, if I have to write stuff like this, but worse, if I have to read stuff like this every week, like I don't want to do that. And the thing is, even if you, if you don't write it, you get it, eh, you submit it to a journal, you get it back, there's redaction, you send it back and it goes fourth like three four five six times and i mean it's such a hassle i mean it's also why why i didn't go further in academia after my master's in philosophy i have my mm -hmm. own website and these youtube videos and i can just make whatever i want and there's no gatekeepers and that's it's kind of neat actually because it, they're just my faults there's no redaction redaction there's no one commenting on it and um, sure sometimes collaborations are, are great but it does feel really freeing to just be able to produce what i want totally totally and um i you know i want to ask you about that about your process for producing the videos for example that you do but just just before we go there i just want to uh, wrap up the topic of uh, topic of reading more for people who want to do that um what advice do you have for people who say I would like to read more books, whatever type of books they are, but I don't have the attention span. When I start reading, I get distracted. So the first thing I'd say is think about the environment. So how can you make sure that you're actually reading and not doing whatever that is di distracting you? And that might be really difficult. So if it's really difficult, go to a place where the only thing you can do is read a book. <laughs> Just leave your phone at home take a book with you, walk away 30 minutes from your home, go sit on the bench. Well, there might be, still be trees distracting you or clouds or whatever, but I'm sure it will be different <laughs> distraction than your environment. Because, I mean, where you want to read, which is probably at home, there is already there are already so many patterns of behavior and, and rituals yeah. that you have. So perhaps you need a new place for reading somewhere where you can build uh, new rituals, new habits. And that might be outside. It might be a different spot in your house. It might even just be a new chair or turning around the chair to face a different wall. And now say, okay, this is my reading spot. And that's the thing. Think environment first, and then you should be good. No, I like that advice. And I think a lot of the time people intuitively understand this because I'll hear people say, whether it's for reading more or some other kind of goal that they have that requires them to focus, you know, they'll be like, you know, I had a week off work and suddenly I made a ton of progress on this. And like, why is that? That is because you were on holiday in a different environment and you, you broke your patterns. Um, so there, is there any role for willpower at all or should people just completely ignore that and only focus on the environment? I don't know. Willpower is obviously important for some things, but I don't, really think for reading as also because it's supposed to be fun right you're trying to do yes. this to be <laughs> something you enjoy and if you're trying to do it with willpower like then it becomes something you're forcing yourself to do and I, i'd say it's probably already enough in your life that you're 
willpowering your way through to and it's also sad to see reading as something you require willpower like think about joy the joy of reading let let that joy guide you i mean when i think about reading i think about that it's fun and that's i really think you want to go to a space like that and, and leave the willpower yeah. at your computer I love that. I love that. So you mentioned your YouTube channel, um, Floors Reads. <laughs> um, I am curious to hear about your process for producing a YouTube video. So how do you go from having an idea to create a certain video to actually having created that video? So in the beginning, the format was really simple. I just read a book every week and I made a video about it. Mm -hmm. um, so th those were really like book reviews but after a while that got kind of boring because I find myself repeating what I was saying but then about different novels so I've been doing some experiment experimenting and tackling more like video essays which is about not having a smartphone and um, yeah, yeah different kind of books so that also required a different kind of structure so Yeah, I've, I've actually been changing this quite a bit, but what I've always done is I've I've scripted my whole videos. So hmm. I've done attempts at freestyling it, but it doesn't work at all. Like I have to write out every single sentence of, of what I'm going to say. Um, so basically I use this app called Obsidian and I have a list there of topics that I find interesting. Wait, I have I, to stop you here for a second because yeah. I feel like some people just absolutely, you just made them very, very, very happy. Obsidian is currently one of the hottest apps in the productivity space. So uh, people, here's another uh, Obsidian <laughs> user. Okay, you may proceed now. <laughs> yeah, so, but I've only been using Obsidian for a couple of months. <laughs> I, I've, I've tried Notion, but I don't like Notion at all. I don't know if that makes people happy or unhappy. But well, I'll, I'll tell you, actually. So my most popular YouTube video is one in which I'm sort of ranting about things you shouldn't use Notion for. Last time I checked, it had like 300,000 views or something like that. So it's very funny that you say that. Um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, Notion sucks. Let's just say it, Obsidian rules. Uh, so the great thing about the program for people who don't know it at all is that it allows you to link your thoughts like it. it you can simple, simply make uh, hyperlinks from one fault to another fault. So what I, for example, do is I have daily journaling and then I just write out my thoughts. And sometimes I have thoughts about video projects or books that I'm reading. So I might get a hyperlink to the video project or, or the book that I'm reading. And then there is a separate page for the book and for the video project. And just whenever I'm working on it, I have my thoughts there. And then when I really go and produce the, the script, I look at, all the, the pages and notes that I've made that are somehow related to the book. And mm. that is kind of my basis for my script. And then from there, I try to write a script, rewrite it. And then, yeah, usually I'm unhappy with the script. And then filming starts and, yeah, the fun starts, I guess. And in what time span does this happen? Do you sort of sit down in the morning and you just bang out the whole script and the video in one day or does this happen over like the course of four weeks yeah longer periods especially now I'm making more complicated videos uh, i notice myself yeah that it takes a couple of couple of weeks for the ideas to to develop mm. 
but that's also because I'm taking care of my daughter the, like basically the whole day. So there, yeah. there are no periods of me sitting for a couple of hours straight. Like it, it's just half an hour there, half an hour there. Um, but it works. Like I think I'm producing one video a month at the moment. So it's not a lot, but I do to try to make it the best video that I can make. And But how did that work before your daughter was born? Did you have, for example, like, like I said, like a whole day that you worked on YouTube or has it always been in shorter increments of time? Yeah, so in the beginning, like the first two years when I made weekly videos, I had a day. Sunday was movie day. My mm. girlfriend knew that, my friends knew that, my roommates knew that. And then I would just in the morning write the script, in the afternoon film it, in the evening edit it and publish it. Mm. And honestly, that worked really well, but it just doesn't work for these longer more complicated projects that i'm working on now because back in those days i just had what we call a roll camera looking at me and yeah. i was speaking to the camera and i would have to make cuts to remove all the repetitions and every time i would look awkwardly at the camera but that was it right. nowadays i really try to also include elements of visual storytelling to actually show on video what i'm saying and that takes a lot more effort and oh yeah i'm so that that is by far my least favorite part of making youtube videos because it takes enormous effort to do b-roll yeah but i like it I, I mean also because just doing a roll and talking to camera it got boring for me like yeah i like exploring this side of how to also tell a visual story and not just an essay which i have read aloud and you can see my face but that's I mean, in a sense, my earlier videos were just a face plus a voice, but the rest was just like a blog. Yeah. And now I do think I'm really starting to produce something that's actually a video and that's meant for for this format. And so, so, so you, you say you sort of fit in a half hour here and there, right? But again, l l let's imagine that either we're back before your daughter was born or we're a couple of years in the future where you don't have to sort of pay attention to her like the whole day, maybe she's in school or something. How would you structure your day and would you structure your week? Would you say this morning I'm going to work on YouTube and you just kind of start working on it until you feel like stopping? Or is it more like, well, today between 11 and two, I'm going to work on this. Do you have a, do you have a sort of structure like that? Yeah, I've always been really strict about this. Like, so my morning is is always my productivity zone or hours. Like before twelve is is when I'm really really focused. So, mm. but that well, that still happens. Like, so every morning I wake up at, at eight, I go for a walk with my daughter, and then before I used to take a walk alone, and then I go sit behind the computer. Now I have a standing desk, and I actually stand behind the computer and my daughter is is right here tied up to my chest and then mm. i start with some daily journaling and then i start doing work on the projects that i, I want to work on so uh, for a couple of years it, it was working on my master thesis writing a novel sometimes a day for a youtube video uh, and now it's mostly just working on youtube videos I see. So you just start in the morning every day, roughly the same time. Do you stop at the same time every day also? Yeah, at 12. And then I go for a workout. Like, I see. I, yeah, I like that, like that structure. And then usually in the afternoon, 
I do something else or or work work some more. But like these co- last couple of months are really really strange for me because I no longer own my own time. But right, that, my I used to have a really strict structure and I still kind of have it, but I'm like at a really low productivity within those hours. Yeah, it's so funny how many new parents use that exact phrase. They're like, you're no longer in charge of your own time. Everybody says this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's, must, it's must just be what it is. Yeah, no, it must be true. Um, all right. Well, I've had a great time chatting with your floors. Really uh, appreciate you coming on. So your website and your YouTube videos and everything are all in Dutch. But a good amount of the people here are Dutch, good amount of the listeners. Um, even if people are not, they can watch some of your videos and turn on the subtitles, which, by the way, like, you know, the reason that we're talking right now is because I recently discovered your channel and I like found your videos extremely engaging. So you talked about, you know, how some of your earlier videos were just a roll, just just your face and whatever. But the recent ones, especially the video essays, like the one on not having a smartphone was so good. I the, my attention span is pretty bad. I cannot watch that many videos where I'm like actually watching the screen for 15 minutes. But for you, like I watched the whole thing and it was so engaging. So I would love everybody to go check it out. Um, where can they find you? And is there anything else you'd like people to check out? Well, first, thank you for the generous words. They can find me at floreslaced.nl or on YouTube, floreslaced, which basically translates to floresleeds. And... Honestly, that, that's it. I mean, I don't. I try to limit my presence on social media. I do think I have Twitter, but I hate, hate Twitter and I have nothing else. No Facebook, no Instagram, no whatever. So YouTube is where I make stuff and my website is where I also post stuff. So that's it. All right. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, thanks very much, Flores, for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Peter.